Okay, we're in uh, the Revelation, part five, which I've entitled, Behold, He is Coming, part two. There's probably a better way to do that, but <clears throat> you're stuck with it. Um, you know, if you read 1 Corinthians 14, you know, everybody goes there for like gifts of the Spirit and all that stuff. But one of the things you'll find when you read 1 Corinthians 14 is the recurring theme of the Apostle Paul in that chapter especially is make it easy to understand. He says that over and over and over again. And I take that as a challenge as a pastor to go, I'm going to make this easy to understand. And I started writing this sermon and on Wednesday. I got about a third of the way through it and I woke up Thursday morning and I reread what I wrote and I just deleted all of it. I'm like, that was not easy. I remember when I was in grad school and I was becoming a teacher, one of my professors made a statement that at first I wasn't really understanding what he was getting at, but I really get it now. And he said that, um, he goes, the better your students, the worse of a teacher you can be. In other words, if you've got students who are really good, you just got to say the stuff. You don't have to be clever. You don't have to be engaging. You know, I mean, I was thinking to myself, I'd like to be like Mary Poppins, you know, where you're just kind of like, Come on, kids, let's just jump into a cartoon, and by the time we're done, you all know what the penguins represent or something, you know? But I, I, I'm looking at this going, if ever, if ever I was dependent upon you being good students, it's here. So I'm just telling you in advance, you're going to have to put on your thinking caps, and whatever is not clear... You come to Q&A and ask questions uh, because uh, in a way, for me, I feel like it's very clear. But I also find that there was a time when it wasn't very clear, this whole eschatology, because I had been immersed in a system that I found very confusing, and yet it was the only show in town, kind of. I almost feel like I want to be that uh, military flight instructor who, when all the potential pilots come up, who are like all crop dusters, you know, who says, everything you know about flying, forget it. And it's almost like, I want to say that. Everything you've heard about eschatology, end times, forget it. And let's start fresh. Having said that, and all the disclaimers and excuses for how unclear this is going to be, let's take a look at Revelation 1, verses 7 and 8. Hear now the word of God. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Thus far the reading of God's word, let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would help us to understand what this coming of the Lord is and what it means that Jesus is coming with the clouds and, and how, Father, that should minister to our hearts and what we should expect and not expect. So we do pray, Father, that as we examine this passage and the language in it, that you would open our minds, help us to be wise unto the word of God, help us, Father, to be ministered to and to minister to others as well, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, a very common response to tragic or 
kind of dramatic events that take place is for the press to find high-profile religious figures and ask them, where was God when this horrible thing took place? We see that, we saw that with Hurricane Katrina, we saw that with 9-11, we saw that with various events. All of a sudden, the microphone is in the face of a well-known clergy member, and I have to say, sometimes, not always, but oftentimes, the responses I hear are cringeworthy. Um, I remember one very well-known, you know, clerical luminary who was asked that question. And the response was, well, in America, we ask God to leave. And God, being the gentleman that he is, left. And I'm like, I kind of in a way go what you're saying, but let me tell you something in case you don't know this. God never leaves. Now, his, his grace may depart, right? His favor may depart, but that doesn't mean he's not there in his wrath. So, even though I, I understand the spirit of the answer, it's a theologically weak answer. Others, others was almost like a, a self-ordained prophetic authority. What they'll do is they will, they will connect a specific sin within the culture to the specific event that is being talked about, the tragedy. For example, I remember the, the escalation of the war in Vietnam in the 60s. You know, people, you know, their argument was, we removed prayer from schools in 1962, therefore, the war in Vietnam escalated. Another one that I heard at, uh, in terms of the towers in 9-11 was, we as a nation departed from the biblical model of a man and a woman in marriage, therefore, the Twin Towers came down. I've seen similar prognostications with abortion. We're doing abortion, therefore there was this earthquake. Now, now, I don't have the prophetic insight to draw such clear, dark lines between the foibles of our culture and the tragedies that somehow follow. And I I do think that it could be a full-time job. It could be a full-time job for me to kind of follow the newspaper and what sin have we engaged in this week and what terrible thing took place and I can make charts as a prophet. Now, that is not to say that I don't think that that happens. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying here. I'm not saying for a minute that, that God does not steal or still deal with the sin of people in such a way as to depose leaders. I just can't make the prophetic connection between this and that. If I was a prophet, I could. John, in writing the Revelation, did. This is why I'm bringing this up. John is going, here's what these people are doing. Here's what God is going to do. Be encouraged. It was very prophetic, albeit difficult to follow, 
very prophetic in terms of what God was going to do. This was not something new. Nor do I think it has ended. I think to this day, there is a God in heaven who deposes kings. We read in Isaiah 23, 9, the Lord of hosts has purposed it to defile the pompous pride of all glory, to dishonor all the honored of the earth. But basically what he's saying, there's people who've become too big for their own britches, right? They think their word is truth. We read also in Isaiah 40, 23, he brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Now, if we, we just went through the Old Testament in this church, this is nothing new. We see it over and over and over throughout the Old Testament. It is a very common practice of God, I'll put it this way, to, to bear for a time the rebellion of man, which, by the way, inevitably results in the oppression and the abuse of the innocent. You almost always see that. When, when the evil leader becomes too evil and too powerful, the people who suffer are the innocent. And God will bear with that for a while and then providentially come in and stem the tide of human darkness. He will go, time is up. The time is up. In a very prophetic, specific, and as I said, somewhat difficult for us to understand, this is what is happening in the Revelation. God is basically telling these churches that are very oppressed, very persecuted, He is saying that the time is up for your persecutors. The time is up for those who are oppressing you. Be faithful. Endure. Because Christ is coming. Now, last time we talked about what that means and what it doesn't mean. What does it mean that Christ is coming in this verse? If you remember correctly, even though popularly a lot of people are like, this is the second coming, I don't think it is. And I think there's a lot of reasons, and I won't go through all of it. We went through it last week. But some of the reasons are, and I put them in bullet points for clarity, the many passages which speak of Christ's coming that aren't the second coming. We, we went over those last week. Oftentimes, Jesus will say, I am coming or I'm going to come, and it's not the second coming. So it's a very natural use of that verb. Secondly, and this was huge, the time texts indicating that this coming is going to happen soon. Remember, we talked about that last week. It's twice in three verses. He says, this is about to happen. And then in verse 7, it's like, and I'm coming. It would be a very unnatural read to be pointing the readers to the end of history when he just said something is about to take place. And finally, at least for now, although there are many other reasons, it neglects the impact of the gospel in history. It's not as if the writers or the readers of the Revelation are just being told by John, look at grin and bear it, keep in mind there's the end of the world. That is not the context of this. This is kind of the language over and over is going to be Christ is coming, endure till the end, persevere, be faithful. 
because he is on the throne and he is about to interject himself into the course of human history in a very significant way. Now, keep this in mind. Even though this verse is not talking about the second coming, it doesn't mean that we're not learning about the second coming. Any coming of the Lord should tell us a little bit about the second coming, just like any judgment of God in history should tell us about the final judgment. When I read of Sodom and Gomorrah, I should learn a little bit about that final judgment because of the judgment I saw in history. But those are two different events. God judging Sodom and Gomorrah is not the same event as God judging on the last day. I would argue, because what you're also going to hear, if you dare talk to anybody about what we're talking about in this church, is you're not taking the Bible literally. It's not the natural reading of the text. I'm going to tell you, it's just the opposite. I would argue that the most natural reading of the passage in context, is the coming of Christ designed to encourage those Christians at those seven churches and that surrounding area during their current duress. They are hearing from God, persevere, Christ is coming soon. It was not pointing them to the end of history. They were to be assured and I'll put it this way, that in some way, Christ was going to come. That's what we're talking about here. Christ is going to come. How? In what way? What, if it's not the end of the world, in what way is Christ coming? Well, I think that what we're going to see in the Revelation is that in chapters 4 through 11, he is going to be coming and dealing with the religious persecutors of the church. Israel, and what he calls in the seven letters of seven churches twice, those who say they are Jews, but they're not. He calls them synagogues of Satan. So he's going to deal with them. And then in chapters 13 through 18, he's going to deal with Rome. What's crazy here is he's going to use Rome to deal with Israel, and then he's going to judge Rome for what they do, which is exactly what we see, by the way, in Habakkuk. Well, Those are, just so you understand, specific historical events that the Revelation is addressing. But that does not mean that God is not still doing that, that he is not still going, your time is done. Your persecution of my people, the church, has gotten to the, this fever pitch to the point where I'm going to now remove you from the scene is the promise that the church has received all the way back from Genesis. Now, put yourself in the shoes of, that, of those seven churches. I mean, we, we have been dealing with in the last year what you might even call a relatively mild, you know, pandemic, you know, when you compare it to human history. I don't think any of us in our wildest imagination are going, oh yeah, we... We are, this is like we're the victims of the Spanish Inquisition. I don't think any of us are kind of going, you know, we're like the first century church, you know, and as much as I don't like the leaders today, oh yeah, they're worse than, than Nero. None, I don't think any of us are so deluded that we think that way. So put yourself in the shoes of that first century church where they're kind of going, but we can't seem to get legs, 
We can't seem to move forward. There's this great promise that when Christ came, that the righteousness of God would cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, and we can't seem to get out of Ephesus. And what we see in the prayer of the martyred saints is, I would argue, a theme that they probably all had, and that theme was something we see actually a lot in the Bible, and that is, how long, O Lord? The martyred saints, they're praying, how long, O Lord, and I'll put it this way, before you show up. This is something we see all the time in the Bible. David said it all the time. I mean, I don't know, have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt, how long? I mean, I mentioned Habakkuk a minute ago. That's what Habakkuk was saying. How long, Lord? You ought to read Habakkuk. It's quite interesting. How long, O Lord, he asks. And the Lord says, not long. He goes like, well, what are you going to do? He goes, I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans. They're bloodthirsty people, and they're going to judge Israel. And then Habakkuk says, well, wait a minute. They're worse than us. And then God says, I know. And then I'm going to judge them for what they do to you. And then Habakkuk does what we all should do, and that is put his hand over his mouth and just kind of go, wow, the sovereignty of God. How long? David, we see it. You can look it up in the Psalms. It's all over the Psalms. I'll just read one, but then you'll see other references. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How human, right? How long will you hide your face from me? Where are you? How long must I take counsel in my soul? I mean, you look at that and go, what? It's like, how, much, how long do I have to just talk to myself? I feel like I'm talking to myself. And have sorrow in my heart all day. This is hard. And I'm praying and you're just not responding. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? And keeping in mind how evil David's enemies were. Well, what I'm telling you here is in the Revelation, that is answered in a very specific, prophetic way, and the answer is not long. It will soon take place. How? He is coming. We talked about that last week. How is he coming? In the clouds. This was a big portion that I deleted. Because I'm like, okay, how far into the clouds do I want to get here? And so we're going to just, you might as well just saddle up. Because we're going to talk about clouds for a little bit. Of course, you have the advantage of me already giving this sermon to the earlier service and me able to now call an audible right here at the line of scrimmage. Because I'm going to tell you, I think, coming on the clouds, I'll tell you right up front and then we'll get into it a little bit. Coming on the clouds is him coming in judgment, in history, utilizing a nation to judge another nation. That's what I'm going to argue coming in the clouds is. But now let's back up. Having said that, because clouds are one of those things in the Bible that is mentioned a lot and means a lot of different things. You know what it is sometimes? A cloud. Sometimes a cloud is just a cloud. Jesus talks about rain coming out of the clouds. That's a cloud. Sometimes clouds are used to shadow the glory of God. Like in the transfiguration, clouds are brought up. And it's almost like designed, you know, to protect those watching from the glory of God. 
What we see in the Old Testament is clouds are used to both guide Israel and protect Israel. So clouds are used that way as well. But there are two places in the Bible, or at least two events, where clouds become very significant. And I'm going to argue these are two separate events, but we tend to conflate them. We, we, we take these two different events, and part of it's because they mention clouds, and we make it one event. And that's where I think a lot of the confusion lies. I'm going, to make it, I'm going to try to make it as clear as I can, but it's going to take work on your part to follow what I'm saying. One of the most significant events in the accomplishment of redemption, because we have, you know, the birth of Christ, you know, they call the incarnation, the life, the death, the resurrection, and then what? What comes after the resurrection? The ascension. So we see that in Acts chapter 1, Verse 9, okay, Jesus is resurrected. Forty days later, he ascends. We'll take a look at the way that's recorded. Because we are told that they're watching him while a cloud took him out of their sight. So there we have a cloud. In a big event, a cloud. Okay, and I'm I'm going to do a little kind of sidetrack here, so follow me. I'm, gonna, I'm going to argue against the majority report, not historically, but the ones that are selling all the books today, on what the other side of that looks like. What I mean, they're looking up, right? And Jesus disappears into the cloud. Now, I think that what the Bible does, I don't think I'm overstepping, we are brought to the other side of that and kind of are given the opportunity to see what that looks like from the top. And I think Daniel records that, and we read it in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man. Okay, we all know who the Son of Man is, right? I mean, it is the designation Jesus used for himself more than any other designation in the New Testament. One like the Son of Man coming, here you have again, with the clouds, Like I say, I think this is the other side of the ascension of heaven, and he came to the Ancient of Days. Who's the Ancient of Days? God the Father. All right? So you get what's going on here. Jesus goes, disappears in the clouds. He comes to the Ancient of Days in the cloud. He comes to the Father. I'm going to ask you, is he going up or is he coming down? He's going up. And they brought him near before him. And then to him was given. Now, what you'll see here is at the ascension, Jesus sits, and we see this in Acts, on the throne of who? Anybody know? The throne of David. It's this idea of his kingship. So he's on the throne. He ascends and he sits on the throne. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Remember this language that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Now, what is that? I think it's the beginning of the New Covenant Church. The Apostle Paul, he's going to seize upon this language 
in a very, very ministerial way to uplift those to whom he seeks to minister. Paul is going to use very similar language here. And it's going to come, I'm going to read this, and we'll get, it's kind of a long portion in Ephesians, and it'll just be our Bible reading time, and I'm not going to get into the details because I just want to highlight a couple of things, but you know what? When I read this, I have to tell you, I enjoy reading it. I find it very ministerial to me. I hope you'll find it very ministerial to you because what we have here is the Apostle Paul, it's really the for, in the form of a prayer. He's like going, I am praying that you're going to get it. And actually, what you'll see in here is the word revelation. And we were talking about our eyes got need to be open to see what's really taking place. He's like, I need you to understand what's really taking place. This is my prayer for you. Well, let's just read it. Verses 16 through 23 of chapter 1 of Ephesians. Paul writes, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom, and here it is, and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. You see what he's saying here? He's like going, there is an exhaustive amount of power that you need to know God has exercised toward you. He goes on, according to the working of his great might, now here we have it, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead, the resurrection, and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, the ascension. Now look at this language. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, And above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, in case there's any confusion there. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. I, You know, I look at this and I'm like, nothing to me could be more obvious. I think the most natural reading of these passages that I've just given to you is that Jesus rose again. He ascended to the right hand of the Father and was given all authority, as he said in this great commission, right? In heaven and on the earth. And you're like, well, I I hope. I hope you're all going, well, yeah. So I have to, and I don't say this tongue-in-cheek, respectfully disagree with today's majority report that Daniel, in that passage, I don't know if you know this, is writing about the second coming. Remember a minute ago I said, which way is he going? You all said, yeah, he's going up. But, but today's majority report, in terms of end times, it, he's coming down. And all of those things that are given to him, a kingdom and authority and power and dominion, that hasn't happened. I'm going to read a quote, just in case you think I'm making this up from some professors, theologians, from probably the most influential seminary in the United States. And this is what they said. Matter of fact, I had a Bible, and I still have it. 
and it's got one of those guys' names on it. It's, you know, so-and-so's study Bible. This is not me. I'm not kind of going into, like, the shadows here and picking out something obscure. What I'm telling you is this is what most people today believe. Quote, this, he's talking about the Daniel passage. This is in keeping with the Father's promise to the Son in Psalm 2, verses 6 through 9. So far, I agree. And will be fulfilled at Christ's second advent. In other words, this hasn't happened yet. All power and rule and authority and dominion and a kingdom hasn't happened yet. It's the future. Let me tell you, you want to read that passage in Daniel again. We're not going to read it again. There's no mention in that passage of the second coming. There's no mention in that passage of the second advent. You and I and everybody who reads their Bibles, we have to be careful when we read our Bibles. Because this is what happens when we allow a theological system to kind of to, to ride roughshod over our basic Bible study. Sometimes we just have, we have to let the passage say what it says. Jesus is currently at the right hand of the Father, and he's been given all power and rule and authority and dominion, and the Apostle Paul is using that to minister to you and me. And yet the popular view today is, that'll happen someday, it hasn't happened yet. That's a mistake. All right, let's go back. That was my little detour. So let's go back to the clouds. And the ascension. Okay, so they look up. He disappears into the clouds. And then, like very likely, angels. You know, they're, they're, they got questions. The angels answer and say that Jesus, Acts one eleven, will come in the same way you saw him go to heaven. So he went up and he's coming down the same way. And I can't get into all that, but what, you see, you'll, what you'll really see emphasized is Jesus went up in bodily form. He was, they, they saw him, they watched him, and so forth. And he's going to come back the same way in bodily form. People will see him, and so forth. That verse 11 is probably universally the most clear passage in all of Scripture that is used by virtually everybody, myself included, to talk about the second coming. That's the second coming. He left that way, he's going to come that way. He left in the cloud, he's going to come back in the cloud. Now all of a sudden you're like, oh, okay, now it's getting confusing because the cloud. He's going in the cloud, he's coming back in the cloud. But, I just, but I've told you, I don't think verse 7 in Revelation chapter 1 is, is that, even though the cloud is mentioned. And I'll even make it more confusing. The Apostle Paul, in seeking to comfort the church at Thessalonica, talks about the clouds as well in a reference to what I believe to be the second coming. He writes this, 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So he's talking really here about the end, I think, of the end of history. The dead in Christ will raise first. Those who are still alive will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, in the clouds. 
Um, a lot of people will use that verse as a, how many of you ever heard of the secret rapture? You ever heard of the secret rapture? Uh, you got to watch more movies. <laughs> the secret rapture is, you know, it, it, you know, in case of rapture, bus will be unmanned, right? You ever see that bumper sticker? The secret rapture is that all the Christians are raptured and everybody else is left behind. Come on, they've sold 18 million books, right? That's what's going, that, this is, and let me tell you, the word rapture is not in the Bible. It's in actually, and that's not a big argument of any kind, but it's in the Latin, it's a Latin word where it's translated here, caught up. People ask me, Pastor Paul, do you believe in the rapture? And I'll always quote Dr. Greg Bonson, and I go, I do believe in the rapture, but I don't think it'll be a secret, and I usually call it the resurrection. It's as simple as that. So I'm not going to say we're not caught up. I think that's the event. All this to say, you see how confused you all are a little bit right now? Okay, good. I got one no, and I'm like, amen. But at very least, you can see where it's kind of tough, you know, with all these references to clouds. Let me, let me bullet point this for you in terms of the way I think the clouds are used in terms of the first and second advent. Jesus is resurrected and ascends to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, through a cloud. What happens there? He is given all power, authority, and a kingdom. Then, we see clouds mentioned again. He will one day return in the same way he ascended. Cloud bodily. The dead will rise first. The rest will meet him in the clouds. That will be Judgment Day the end of history, the beginning of glory. That's just pure orthodoxy. Almost everybody believes that. So we see the use of clouds both at the ascension and the second coming. But is this the way clouds are used in Revelation 1-7? No. And there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of them I've already mentioned, but I'm going to tell you now the way I think it is used. Because there is another way that clouds are used in the Bible that I think best comports with what we're looking at here in the first chapter of Revelation. They're not used merely in association with the final judgment. Clouds are used often in the Bible in association with judgments that happen in history. Let me give you one example here. I'm going to give you two examples, but this is the first one. Isaiah 19.1, the oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is doing what? Riding on a swift cloud and comes to Egypt and the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. All right? So you see the Lord coming on the cloud. What is that? Anybody know what that event is? That is not the second coming and that is not even in any way a physical coming of Christ. That event, and everybody knows it, this is not something that I'm grabbing and making, every sound exegete recognizes that the Lord riding on a swift cloud in Isaiah chapter 19, verse 1, was fulfilled by the defeat of the Egyptians by the Assyrians. So you have one nation, Egypt, being defeated by another nation, the Assyrians, 
But when it's described by Isaiah, it is the Lord coming on a cloud. That's the way the Bible describes a nation defeating another nation, which we're going to see happen in the Revelation. Calvin wrote about that particular passage this way. He speaks of the defeat of the Egyptians by the Assyrians and shows that it ought to be ascribed to God and not, as irreligious men commonly do, to fortune. In other words, we look at that and go, hey, well, it happens. Stuff happens. But what Calvin is saying is like going, no, no, no. When we see kings and kingdoms deposed, it's by the hand of God coming on a swift cloud, even though what we are actually watching is one nation deposing another nation. I'll give you one more example, but there are a lot of them. Nahum, in Nahum 1.3, is prophesying the destruction of Nineveh by Babylon. This is about 150 years after Jonah. Because you might be going, well, wait a minute. I thought Jonah went to Nineveh and said, repent, and they repented. And all was well in Nineveh, and it was for about 150 years. And Nineveh went back to their old ways, and God said, time's up. And God raised up the Babylonians to remove the Ninevites. But here's the way it's described. The Lord, Nahum 1.3, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. That event of the Babylonians defeating Nineveh is described by Nahum as the Lord coming on the clouds as the dust of his feet. Well, hopefully you understand that when we see the language, the Lord coming on a cloud, it doesn't always refer to the second coming, and often in Scripture, probably even more than referring to the second coming, it is, it is Christ coming providentially in judgment by raising up, and I'm going to argue this, and this might really blow your minds, because the Roman armies became, and I, I didn't come up with this myself, but I read it, what they did to the Jews at the fall of Jerusalem is so graphic that I'm not even probably going to read some of the historical notations by mainly Josephus of what happened. But one, of the, one, one either theologian or historian said, those Roman soldiers were Satan-inspired to do the evil things that they did. And yet it is God, ultimately, who's in control, even of Satan. You think God left it to chance that Satan would enter Judas and Judas would betray Jesus? You know, Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He's God's junkyard dog. And so we have to recognize that these, the Roman armies who were just deplorably evil, even in their evil, meaning it for evil, were doing at the same time that which God had determined that they should do. And that's why I think it is important to have sound theology when we read the Revelation. Otherwise, things aren't going to sound right to us. Well, I'm going to read one more passage that is going to have both a reference to clouds, I hope you're not tired of the clouds, and a reference to time, when things will take place. Now, I'm going to read this, and as I'm reading it, I'll bet most of you are going to be like, that has to be the second coming, until we keep reading. 
and then you're going to be confused. And then I'm not going to go much further than that other than we do have Q&A, and I'd be glad to answer your confusion during Q&A because I've spent quite a bit of time on this passage, and I think it's all explainable. This is, the, this is called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gave a discourse, on the, a discourse on the Mount of Olives. And it begins with his followers who are now in Jerusalem looking at the temple, which were very impressive and kind of basically going, wow, Jesus, look. And Jesus basically says to them, not one stone is going to be left upon the other. And then they kind of go, well, people turn their question into all sorts of things. Basically, their question is, tell us about that. You know, what's that going to look like? When is that going to be? And so forth. Here's something that you might find interesting. That this Olivet Discourse is recorded in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Right? What they call the synoptic, the synoptic Gospels. You know where it's not? John. I think, and I can't prove this, I think John was kind of going, I could record the Olivet Discourse, but instead, I'm going to write the Revelation. Because the Revelation, as you're going to see here in a second, is basically a protracted Olivet Discourse. You'll see the language. It's unmistakably the same language. All right, so let's just look at Matthew chapter 24, verses 30 through 35 because there's a lot in that that we just kind of skip. But I, I, I mentioned this because it talks about the clouds and it gives you a time reference. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. By the way, in the Greek, that can be translated, then will appear that the Son of Man is in heaven. All right? So some people say, well, Constantine saw a cross in heaven or something like that. Basically, the way this could be translated, and I think probably works better with the context is, we will know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father when these things happen. All right? Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. That's in verse 7 of chapter 1 of Revelation, right? All the tribes of the earth will mourn. That'll be in part 3, which you get to next week. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. There you have Revelation 1.7 coming on the clouds. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. And you're like, oh, well, that seems very international. And I think it is international because what he's basically saying is what's going to happen here is going to open the nations to, to the preaching of the gospel. But let's go back to what's happening here. He goes, uh, verse 32 I don't know where I'm in, 31. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and put, puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. In other words, he's kind of going, look it, something's about to happen, summer is near. But it does all sound like second coming language, doesn't it? But let's read on. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates, verse 34. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words will not pass away. How do you read verse 34? I can't tell you how much tap dancing I've seen done with verse 34. People will go, well, no, it's the generation that's in existence in the last times. Well, let me tell you something. You have a near demonstrative, right? This, this generation. The Greek has a far demonstrative. He could have used that generation, but he doesn't. He says this generation. Let me add one other thing. Yeah, as if that's true. One last thing. Every time Matthew uses that, every time he uses this generation, which is about a half a dozen times in Matthew, every time he's talking about the generation that is alive while he's alive, every single time. Now all of a sudden we have to, in chapter 24, go, now it means something entirely different than it's meant throughout the entire gospel. Friends, that's not good Bible reading. It's not good Bible study to kind of go, I'm immediately going to change what this has meant for 23 chapters. And by the way, in chapter 23, clearly Jesus says, upon this generation will all of the sins of Abel to Zechariah fall. And then all of a sudden, in the next chapter, he's using it in an entirely different manner. That just doesn't work. This language of imminence. I'm just going to read a couple more. Because what you'll find is critics will go, well, clearly the Bible's not true because this didn't happen. I remember doing a wedding in a Roman Catholic church and the priest came up to me and said, we, somehow we got into eschatology. He's like, well, yeah, neither Paul nor Jesus really knew. I mean, they made mistakes about the end times. And there he's citing these verses. Right, look at How do you read this? Matthew 10, 23, when they persecute you, Jesus, this is Jesus talking to the twelve just in case. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. How do you deal with that? Like there's no way you can make that mean anything other than you guys go out, do your missionary work, you won't even get through Israel before I come. That, there's no way that can be the second coming. Let me read one more. Matthew 16, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. And then he will repay each one according to what he has done. Again, sounds like the end of history. Then he writes this. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And I mean, some people will go, well, that's a transfiguration, because what you'll see in Matthew is right after that transfiguration. That happened one week later. Would I, if I were talking to you, and we were going to have something next week, in what world would I say, some of you will still be alive? <laughs> but the fall of Jerusalem happened 40 years later. Now, now it works, Right? Something's going to happen in 40 years. Some of you will be alive, some of you won't. That's what Jesus is saying. Some of you will not taste death until you see me come through the Roman armies and destroy this temple that we've been talking about. And that will clear the way for the new covenant. And we're going to see that, and I'm, this I need to repeat, in 4 through 11, 
of Revelation, in 13 through 18 of Revelation, and I will argue that chapter 19 of Revelation, where you see Jesus on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, and on his hip it says, King of kings and Lord of lords, and he goes out throughout the nations. That is the victory of the gospel. The, the Revelation is a revelation of great victory. It is not one of defeat. It is of great victory. And Christ will assure that his church will persevere and will be the kingdom that endures forever. These are cataclysmic events that end the old covenant and begin the new covenant. This is what we see in the Revelation. History opened. And Jesus providentially preserving his church. That's why what you're going to see in the Revelation, especially as in chapters 2 and 3, is Christ saying, remain the church. Remain a church. Don't follow the spirit of the age. Don't allow what's going on in your culture to, to creep into your church. Otherwise, I will remove your lampstand and you won't be a church at all. There is a kingdom that will endure forever. I'm assuring you of its victory. You need to be in that kingdom. It is a kingdom of love and grace and mercy it is a kingdom of people who are covered by the blood of Christ. And it is a kingdom who will proclaim that. I would argue we see that very clearly in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what my kingdom looks like. It looks like this kind of thing. These kind of people. We have to have great confidence in what God has said he will do. I don't know if we do. We read in Isaiah 59, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. I mean, you got to know, God's going, look at it. I will do what I have set myself to do. And my hand is not so short that I can't do it, nor his ear heavy that it cannot save. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. There is not a, a king or a sparrow that is not in the hands of Christ. And in light of that, we are to respond appropriately. And you know what appropriately it is? It is faithfully. Next week, we're going to complete this. God willing. And we will talk about those who pierced him. What is that? Why does he mention that? All the tribes of the earth. Who are they? And what does it mean that they will mourn? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would still in our hearts a great confidence that you are in fact in charge of history and ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And even as we read in that Ephesians passage that all authority and power and rule and dominion has been given to Christ as a result of his resurrection and ascension, given to him on behalf of his bride, the church. So we do pray that we would remain the church. That, Father, we would ever recognize the, the beauty and value of being covered, even as we'll see in a few minutes here, by the blood of Christ, without which all of this is just talk. So we do pray, Father, that you would grant us the knowledge of the great victory that awaits those who ever persevere in the faith. In his name we pray. Amen.